He was trembling. He wanted to get close enough for him to kill her with a single shot before she realized what he was going to do. He wanted to stop sentimentalizing her. He didn't know who she was, what she had done, or the people she had killed. If she had been up here at dawn, she had killed the men in the helicopters and trying to kill him. Another mistake. That was the price of failure. She was at the foot of the stairs, holding a Kalishnikov, looking into his eyes, frightened, trying to smile. She had perfect teeth. He had the pistol low, so she would not believe he was aiming it at her. He shook, quaked. His bladder opened. As he raised the pistol, she realized he had allowed her to live these extra seconds only to carry the gun to him. She started to scream. Leland could see she had never lived, that she knew she was dying without having ever experienced the most natural course of life. Leland thought of his dead daughter, Steffi, and shot this bitch in the forehead above the bridge of her nose. Uh. So, welcome to Literary Guys. I'm sorry for reading that quote, but I think it really... Uh, it really summarizes the terrible things that happen in this book. If you um, didn't believe us that you should read this book, hopefully now you do. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen. I'm author Zachary Kellyan, and I believe that was the second time our quote-unquote hero loses control of his bladder in the course of this novel. This is true. So this book, which we are in part two now of Nothing Lasts Forever, I've given it a lot of thought, and I'm like, how would I describe this book? to someone who hadn't read it. Okay. And the simplest explanation I've been able to come up with is this. Imagine it's Thanksgiving, and you have an older racist relative (laughs) who is drunk and tries to relate to you the story of Die Hard and will not shut up. And they only remember, like, this very racist, very nonsensical story with, with weird subplots and this relative, who I'm assuming is male... You know, had a thing for one of the actresses in the movie and kind of imagined this subplot with him just acting in a very misogynistic way towards her. And this relative will not shut up for 200 plus pages worth of narrative. <laughs> and it's Thanksgiving, so what else are you going to do? That's so spot on. It's, it's like uh, Bobby Moynihan's character from SNL, Drunk Uncle, mm-hmm. who is in the midst of a Vietnam War flashback is trying to relate the plot of Die Hard to you. That is exactly what this novel is. It's like, so there was this black guy, I guess. I don't know what he was doing there. But anyways, he then caved this guy's skull in with a fire axe for like 15 minutes. <laughs> that's that's the novel. It's t- yeah, it's actually written in that style. <laughs> I'm not sure. It, for our last book, we talked about literary styles. I'm not sure this one has a name. I think I think I think you described it pretty well though. It's drunk Thanksgiving uncle is the literary style of this novel. Mm-hmm. So I do want to get into some discussion here. This is a plot-driven novel, as mm-hmm. much as we can say that it, it has a plot sure. and that it has any forward momentum that would imply that it was being driven in any particular direction. If you zoom out, the plot of this book actually isn't that holistically different from Die Hard, the movie, particularly the middle parts. We have the character Joe Leland, again, who is the proxy for John McClane. I like that it's not the other way around. Despite the timelines as they exist in our current universe, John McClane is the original Joe Leland, and I would agree with that statement. Yes. It's the only way this makes sense. In my world, it's the only one that that I want to believe. 
So we have this character who gets into a number of different scraps that the police start to show up. The police make some dumb moves. They send in helicopters who get shot up. Really nothing happens. Like there's not a lot of character development. Mm -mm. There's there's just a series of events that happen, and not a whole lot. Like, you could cut a big chunk of this book out, and it really wouldn't matter that much. And we've read books like this before, mm-hmm. and it's not surprising. It, it's just kind of interesting. And as you were saying in the previous episode, like, some books are able to make that very entertaining. Here, it feels like a total slog that you just kind of want to get through this thing. There's no one to root for, which I think is why Die Hard works. Because, again, it's the same way. It's a series of events. Things don't go quite to plan. And eventually we get to the third act, and then there's a confrontation. When Bruce Willis can bring more sensitivity to a character than the author of a novel can, you've got a problem. Well, I actually like Bruce Willis as an actor. I think he's He's underrated. underrated. I agree, I agree. So the script is good. Intriguingly, I learned that the ending of the movie was not determined until it was well into production. There was no way to get the terrorists out of the building. It's an interesting uh, side note. But we have a number of weird communications that happen while Joe Leland is up in the building. We talked last time about his ongoing communication with the flight attendant who he mildly sexually assaulted at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. But there's also the police officers and police leadership who are outside the building who he's communicating with. We have Dwayne Robinson. Uh, who is sort of his comic foil, for lack of a better word. We have Al Powell. Who is the Carl Winslow character from Die Hard. Mm -hmm. And we have another character who is Taco Bill. Tell me about Taco Bill. Taco Bill, who is understandably not in the film, is this CB radio operator with godlike powers... Mm-hmm. who kind of interjects himself into the narrative for no discernible reason, has very little impact on the goings-on, but just kind of occasionally comments over the radio to either the terrorists, the police force, or to the detective, Joe Leland, about what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's the Greek chorus, if you will. <laughs> that's, that's giving him so much credit, but I love it. Yes, I, I would agree with that statement. And the deus ex machina, all in one. In fact, our sponsor for this week is Taco Bill himself. Really? You've actually got him live via CB radio right this very minute. Taco Bill, you want to take it away right now? Taco Bill here for Taco Bill CB radios. Taco Bill broadcasting all the way up to Canada right down to San Diego. Do you need a police channel block for an inexplicable plot reason? I've got you covered. Need to be patched through to the flight attendant you casually sexually assaulted on your most recent transcontinental flight? Taco Bell's here for you. Hi folks, Taco Bill here. Just getting real for a minute. You might be saying to yourself, hey there Taco Bill, your name sounds an awful lot like the fast food chain. Well, that's not where my name comes from and I can't tell you why they call me Taco Bill because there might be kids listening. But what I can address is the rumors that I'm here for a plot device and that I have no discernible backstory or character motivation. That's just bull hockey, because jokes on you, there is no plot. Just casual violence with no winners, only losers. No one to root for in this towering inferno ripoff of a novel. This has been Taco Bill. Advise you to skip reading Nothing Lasts Forever and just watch Die Hard again. Or Die Hard 2. Or honestly, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Eh, I, I kind of like, uh, or Live Free or Die Hard. Someone with his daughter 
Ah, yes. And then it was it Die Harder with his son. What was the mm-hmm. most recent one? The one with his daughter I actually enjoyed. Timothy Oliphant made a great villain in it. Um, you had an F-22 Raptor that was remote controlled that machine gunned a semi. There, there was a lot of good stuff in that. So now that we're talking about remote control planes blowing up cool things, it's a nice segue into masculinity and Indeed. thinking about the masculine ideals mm. and traits in this book. You know, I like to ask the question of what did we learn from the male characters in this, this book? I feel like there's maybe more that we can learn from not doing what we see them in this book, but I figure that's probably a good way to talk about Joe Leland and his version of masculinity. Yeah, you know, I put I put some thought into this as well, and I know right now in 2021, there's some triggering language around the concept of toxic masculinity. There's a lot of guys who you and I may have had conversations with that don't even want to buy into that notion that such a thing exists. And I guess what I would say to those of you who are fatigued by a quote-unquote overly PC culture or who don't believe in toxic masculinity, take a look at Joe Leland versus John McClain. You have two very manly quote-unquote characters doing very manly things against terrorists in an office complex, but you've got one that does it in an extremely toxic way, and you've got one that does it with some measure of humanity and compassion. And of course... You can guess because of our opinion of this novel, which one's which. But yeah, I mean, there's just nothing redeemable about Joe Leland. All his decisions come from hate or not understanding or self-convenience. He's a very solipsistic human being who is so bitter about life, despite seemingly having no reason to be so bitter, and is casual both in his violence and in his disregard for others. So I want to chase that idea a little bit more because I don't think I disagree with anything that you just said. I would ask the question if you believe that maybe 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that it was more acceptable for a man to take on that worldview and act in that way in society. Like that was a path you could go. Maybe it wasn't looked upon super positively by society, but it was a sort of a role that some men chose to take on. Because I look at that generation, and I, you know, I, I don't want to be one of these, these people who are just like hating on the boomers or anything like right. that. But for some reason, I, I tend to think that there are more people who kind of have fallen into that trap, and it was just tacitly, maybe not celebrated, but just kind of... Tolerated and I think that's that an way. important distinction to make, too, because as we read so many historical novels here on Literary Guys, we see a lot of admirable male characters, even if they're operating under some societal norms that we no longer agree with. There's still something admirable about them that we can find in 2021. Mm-hmm. And so clearly a better version of masculinity than we see in this 1979 novel was celebrated far earlier. But I think you're right. There was probably more tacit acceptance or maybe maybe more accurately, let's look the other way. Yeah. What harm can he be? Yeah, this guy's an a-hole. Yeah, we don't like him very much, but how, how? it's not a big deal. Where, of course, it is a huge deal because those men go on to raise other men just like them. Those men go on to make others' lives miserable for the sake of their own comfort, I guess, let's say. And, and, and Joe Leland is that character. Would I want to be friends with John McClane? A hundred percent. Would I want to be on the same flight as Joe Leland? Never. Mm-hmm. Because he might get assaulted. <laughs> right, right. He might lean in for that kiss, 
and I'd have to inform him that, sir, I am a flight attendant, not a stewardess. And that is not me being sexist. That was the novel being sexist. So one of the, the scenes that is both mirrored in the book and the novel that kind of relates to what we're talking about right now is after John McClane slash Joe Leland walks through the broken shards of glass barefooted, yeah. mm-hmm. is holed up, tending to his wounds, and is having that first conversation with his quote-unquote partner, the first LAPD officer to show up at the scene. Right. And just in the novel, it is Joe Leland all obsessing over his own hurt, thinking about his own situation. At no point in that scene is he even thinking about his daughter, who is the hostage being held in the novel. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the movie, if I remember right, you've got Bruce Willis delivering this amazing monologue as he's picking shards of glass out of his feet about his love for his wife, and then also connecting with the police officer down below on a very human level and developing that character a little bit more. And there's just so many interesting parallels to put those scenes back to back and see what a toxic man might do in a similar situation and a man who has maybe a little bit more to offer the world might do. I think that scene is really a singular moment to look at the differences here. I cannot disagree with you on that. It seems that John McClane, he's not a perfect character in Mm -mm. any stretch of the imagination. That's what makes him relatable. Like having flaws, people relate to that. People are sometimes even drawn to the flaws. They're interesting. They add depth. You can't be all flaws. And I look at Joe Leland And I'm like, what are his positive character traits? Right. You've got John McClane, who, like Joe Leland, is divorced. But John McClane is still going to see his wife, still clearly has compassion and love for his wife, Mm -hmm. even though, well, I guess they're not officially divorced in the movie just yet. Right. Right. Uh, But he does find out she changed her name. And again, he kind of understand why she did that, because his detective work had kind of consumed him for so long in New York. And then you've got Joe Leland also divorced, but whose wife is dead. He found out his wife had died via her husband, her second husband, whose name he didn't know, by the way. Mm -hmm. He's flying to L.A. to meet with his daughter, who I think the first mention that he makes of her is when he meets her at the office party and feels like maybe she's gained 10 pounds. That's Joe Leland for you. He's just not a kind, compassionate person in any stretch of the imagination. So maybe the takeaway is that even though someone can on the surface do a really wonderful thing and save a lot of people and save their lives that really there's a point where one's own character is so just broken and angry that still saving all those lives doesn't offset that bit about that person i I feel like this is totally uh Joe was a means to an end to get people out of the building. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to celebrate anything about him. I don't want people to assume that this is what a hero looks like. He is not a hero. Even if you just take the things he thinks about and the thoughts he has, he's not a good person. And you couple that with the things he does behind closed doors with pumping a couple magazines worth of bullets into a corpse or shooting people point blank. That's so little that's redeemable there. And again, this is you extrapolating something that we can try to teach ourselves from this novel. This is not a commentary that the novel is making on the nature of violence or how it might corrupt the human soul. If you want that exploration, you should read Cormac McCarthy. This novel is just an ugly novel about an ugly person, 
probably written by an ugly guy. I don't know. I don't know a lot about Roderick Thorpe. I don't want to cast aspersions on him, but I don't want to read anything more that he's written. Okay, quick question. We've obviously read this book because Die Hard is amazing. It's amazing. Is it possible that our reading of this book is being totally overshadowed by the fantastic and fabulous nature of Die Hard that we're now just seeing this character who is so clearly not as cool and wonderful as John McClane that we just think that he's that much more awful. Maybe, although I would say I wouldn't have finished this book if it wasn't for Die Hard. Interesting. This this book, as you said in our last episode, a lot of people would stop reading after that first chapter because Joe Leland just goes through the chapter being casually racist and sexist to people, and there's just no redeeming quality either in the narrative world that is created or in the prose itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't agree with the fact that I think it was ever a good book. Even though the L.A. Times had glowing things to say about this book. They call it a ferocious, bloody, raging book. So single-mindedly brilliant in concept and execution, it should be read at a single sitting. Which, I will point out, I did. Not because I enjoyed this book, but because I had to finally finish it for the sake of this podcast. And it was the most excruciating afternoon I've spent in years. I read it over the course of, like, three weeks and let's just say i could put this book down (laughs) yeah but let's keep in mind at one time the los angeles times loved it well that's because it takes place in la well the new yorker also had this to say about its cultural sibyleths the new yorker says keeps us in a state of almost unequaled suspense and excitement Except for those entire chapters where, despite the fact that terrorists are actively hunting him with machine guns, Joe Leland just takes time to ruminate about some old war buddies he had, or the time he built a plane, or what he could have done differently in his marriage, but glad he probably didn't because it all worked out in the end anyways. There's so many dull moments in this novel, it's, it's impossible to imagine anyone finding it unequaled in suspense and excitement. Well, unequaled is a weird word. Like, technically, it could mean it's so bad that it has no equal on that end of the spectrum either. This is a man who, according to the notes in my version of the novel, was notable prior to writing this book for having done extensive crime reporting, including a 21-part series on cocaine traffic in Southern California, which was published by the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. 21-part. Okay. Because I have one nice thing to say about this novel, I'm going to challenge you to say something nice about it. Here's one thing I did find interesting, or if not good, at least noteworthy about this novel. Mm -hmm. Clearly, Roderick Thorpe, being a former detective himself, a full-time crime reporter, had some insight into the world. And one thing I was surprised in reading this novel is it kind of had some early insight into the concept of isolated cell terrorism that we now deal with in 2021. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to find that in a novel for 1979. And I suppose at the time this could have been viewed as cutting edge. It could have been viewed as some great predictor of a future dystopia that we might be living in. So I'll give him some credit there. The man knew a little bit about what he was writing about. Perhaps too much. Maybe he only knew an ugly world, and that's why it translates the way it does in his writing. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything nice? If you had to say something nice about this book. Well, I mean, if I had to say something nice, I would go to the action sequences. Like, when Leland is not thinking, talking, narrating, any of those things, and he's just doing, he's actually a very interesting character. Like, these things that you called out that were notable enough to appear in a movie, like, it's here in the book. 
And these are not scenes that you typically see in a book, or at least I'd never read a book that had these things. Using the strap from his gun, the gun itself, like trying to lower himself into the elevator. Which I I would point out, though, is not successful because he's trying to escape the roof. And we have an entire chapter of him crawling through an event only to once again end up on the roof. I'm not disagreeing with that. Just, (laughs) I I think those visceral action moments of him often by himself, when we take the other characters out of it, he's very inventive, he's very interesting, and I think that that's very novel for its time. doesn't make up for the terrible nature of this book, but I think that that creativity in that regard is quite notable. Yeah, if you were a reader in 1979 and you had a less empathetic or sensitive approach to humanity... I could see why this book might be enjoyable, if if only for some of its inventive action scenes. That said, I still think it drags in parts, no matter how you kind of shape it or recontextualize it. And so it's interesting to me that it was as big a hit as it was, or that it inspired such a great movie that, by the way, still holds up today. You can watch Die Hard today and not feel shame or not try to excuse it for, ah, it was a product of its time. Die Hard still works today, and it's beloved by people of many different genders and races and sexualities because it knows what it is, and it's not trying to offend anyone. Well, I think it's a good idea to go out on a high note here, so I think this is a good chance to wrap up the episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about the conclusion and some of the shocking events that occur near the end of this book, and hopefully try and find some other redeeming elements of it. And then stay tuned at the end of the month where Literary Guys will be going on the road for the first time. Until then, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.